And we thank you, Lord, that the reality of this universe is established forever according to the foundations that you have laid, according to your perfect and inscrutable wisdom from the very beginning when this world was created. And they yet remain the points of reference for understanding how you will remake this world into your image. We thank you that even in the wake of sin and death that has entered into the experience of mankind following, following his fall, that nevertheless, through Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman born in the fullness of time, a way has been made for reconciliation of a holy God with sinners. We're here to celebrate that this morning. The fact that Christ has intervened and invaded in history, was born of a woman, lived a perfect sinless life. By the power of His atoning work on Calvary, secured the ability to transfer that to His own, to His elect, to His people, as the covenant head of the covenant of grace, redeeming what the enemy has stolen. This morning, as we look back to the framework of the very origins, Lord Jesus, of institutions and relationships that You laid out to evidence the gospel, I pray that our minds would be renewed, our confidence would be quickened, Lord, and our testimony would be uh, sharpened and precise to proclaim to the world the message of hope in Jesus Christ alone. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus, and thank you for this opportunity. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, I would invite you to turn in the Scriptures to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and also would you mark, shortly after that we'll be reading Matthew 19. Genesis 2 and Matthew 19 will be the two texts that we open with this morning. What a blessing and privilege it is to open up the Scriptures together and to look upon the Word of God preserved for us. Later in the message I might also reference 1 Peter chapter 1, which reminds us, that the, all flesh is as grass, the, flesh, or the uh, grass withers and the flowers fade, yet the word of the Lord stands forever. We're going to read some of the oldest proclaimed words of the Lord Himself all the way back to the Garden of Eden today. And it should be a point of marvelous reality and joy for us to realize that He has preserved these words infallibly before us today in His Holy Word so that we might know that He is before all things, and in Him all things exist. Of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, even in our text today, marriage, the relationship of husband to wife itself. This will be the focus of our study today under this title, From the Beginning. That is to say, marriage is established by God and for God, for His glory, from the beginning, from the garden. We're in a Genesis series, and we begin to see what I've called the architecture of reality, established from the very first days this world was created. And part of the architecture of reality is the covenant of marriage and the invention, if you will, of family itself. These are the very building blocks for society, for the preservation and continuation of the species, after all, in a physical sense. But more than this, marriage speaks to broader, bigger, transcendent, glorious spiritual ideas still, and we find this confirmed throughout the whole and the testimony of divine revelation, even in Ephesians 5, as we will touch on later. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to restore our value and view of marriage to the original intent. It's so easy for us to lose the value, the importance, the beauty of the things that God has ordered. Why? Because we live in a fallen world where the perversion, the profanation, and the distortion of the things that God has ordained as a beautiful, perfect, amazing, glorious thing 
have been turned, twisted, manipulated, and denigrated by the sin of mankind. Nevertheless, this morning, as we look at God's original intent for the ordering of our lives, including marriage itself, it is my prayer that He would use the proclamation of His Word today to restore our value and our view, our understanding of marriage according to His original intent. So with that brief introduction, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word with your Bible open to Genesis chapter 2, and let us behold verses 18 through 25 together this morning. Listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in your hearing today. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God. You may be seated. As I mentioned to you, could you turn in your scriptures next to Matthew chapter 19? The context of this verse is Jesus is interacting with objectors, those who take issue with what he has said, and they raise questions they think will be difficult for him to answer, that will cause him to trip up. They do so in an arrogant and proud way. They, after all, are the experts in the religious material of the day, and certainly this man who is a poorly dressed teacher from Nazareth, a place of, you know, little dignity, uh, could be uh, thwarted by our superior intelligence, so they ask him difficult questions. One of these questions has to do with divorce and marriage, and it comes in the context of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 19. Notice what Jesus, how Jesus interacts with his objectors. This is verses 3 through 6 of Matthew 19. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Quote, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, quote, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let no man separate. As we read these verses in Matthew 19, when questioned, we find that Christ, when questioned about what is permissible in marriage, He interacts and in answering and referring to the nature of marriage, the union itself, all the way back to its declared, its revelation, uh, the revelation of its origin in Genesis itself. 
Jesus, in doing so, could not have been more clear as to the foundation of marriage and the authoritative word, the authoritative voice on these matters. He responds, have you not read this kind of incredulous challenge to his uh, interlocutors, those who are asking him these questions? You're asking me these questions, yet the answer is before you in your holy book. You're supposed to be an expert in it. Have you not read? When Jesus asks this question, it's, of course, with reference to the authoritative Word of God. You have the answer. It's in the Word of God. And the answer comes in the very beginning, chapter 2, in fact. Have you not considered that these words are authoritative as to the ground and foundation of the institution's that God has created, such as marriage, he continues, quote, he who created them from the beginning is a phrase that we pull from Matthew 19. Now, with reference here, Jesus points to the sovereign will of God exercised in the created order, establishing the ethical, that is, right from wrong, framework of his world for all time. In other words, he who created us, or created them, speaking of the first human pair, man and woman, Adam and Eve, has the right to establish the terms of their relationship, their life and well-being for all of time. And so he has, according to his law, revealed in his word. By these references, Jesus reminds his objectors that God has made mankind male and female, and he cites Genesis 2.24, instructing him, or in this context, God instructs him, man, to leave and cleave Hold flesh as one, or and, and hold fast as one flesh with his wife. And at, when he does so, when Jesus references it, references these words, he's punctuating his authoritative appeal with an emphatic command that we live in light of these truths. Now we have God in flesh appealing to the word of God declared beforehand, telling his hearers, speaking to them with authority, such as the scribes did not have. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. When you hear these words in the context that they're given, they're bold, they're clear, they're unapologetic, they're unequivocal in their power, their authority, in their reference to the timeless truths, right and wrong, that God has laid all through Scripture. Is the church today as confident, as bold, as clear, as unapologetic and unambiguous as Jesus was in His declaration? Well, if we are not, we must repent. What might be the motive for confusion on these matters? We live in a culture that seeks to redefine the terms of marriage. Redefine more terms than this. In fact, our culture tells us today that it is not true that God created us male and female. Our culture tells us that gender is a social construct. What do they mean when they say that? They mean, oh, societies come up with completely arbitrary means of defining the relationships and each other's identities, and interacting with one another. And they're all subject for a vote and a change, manipulation, alteration, with a progressive understanding of human relationships and right and wrong as we stumble into it in this evolutionary progress toward, towards some unspecified end that they think is better just because it's uh, more along the lines of their sinful preferences and so forth. Well, when a culture is upside down in their values, when they have lost the foundation of right and wrong, they do not need to hear a coddling sense of quasi-compassion, a, a, or a, a coddling voice of quasi-compassion that interacts with them saying, I really understand where you're coming from. No. Compassion says, 
you must repent or you earn, like every other sinner, the wages of sin, which is death. Death is the end of a culture who embraces the redefinition of the terms of marriage, male and female, and everything else that God has established according to His created order. And so we find ourselves in something of a downward spiral of social suicide because we don't take seriously the authoritative, unchanging, infallible Word of God on these issues. The history of man's rebellion against God from the fall is a long, foolish, stubborn record of attempts to separate what God has joined together. What God has joined together, let no man separate. If society is going to function well, it must be joined together with His law. If a, a, a man is to operate in the fullness of his design, he is to be joined together with his wife. He is not to be separated from her. This is a permanent union, a bond that God has established till death do us part, as we used to confess in our marriage vows in this country. The history of man's rebellion, nevertheless, is a separation, is a move, a foolish and stubborn record of attempts to separate what God has joined together, trying to rearrange the architecture of reality to accommodate our self-worship, all the way back to original sin, this tendency to see things, oh no, according to ourselves as the center of the universe, we want to rearrange things, we want to rebuild the architecture of reality in our own image, according to our own priorities and preferences. Yet the history of the fall illustrates time and again, as we quoted before, that all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord stands forever, 1 Peter 4, 24 through 25. The word of the Lord, have you not read that from the beginning He created them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh? What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That word stands forever. The details of the creation account of Genesis 2, 18 through 25 establish, as Jesus has said, from the very beginning, the significance of marriage in manifold ways. So as we turn back to Genesis 2, let's consider some of the significance of marriage that is evident even in our primary text today, Genesis 2, 18-25. Here's a heading. From the beginning, marriage has been, first of all, divinely purposed. It is God's plan. It is for God's purposes. He has an intent in marriage, and that is established from Genesis from the very beginning. Number two, from the beginning, marriage has been design-specific. There are particulars about the differences between man and women, men and women, and their uh, nature and in their roles that God has established. From the beginning, marriage is design-specific. We see this even in the process of creation itself, man versus woman, and the ordination of this institution of marriage itself. And finally, the, from the beginning, marriage has been covenantally established. That is to say, marriage is established according to God's terms and conditions for relationships. Relationships that are serious, they are binding, and they have conditions, they have uh, punishments. If they are broken, they have blessings. If they are faithful, attached to them. Let's see this in the context of our text today, shall we? From the beginning, marriage has been divinely purposed. Notice again Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Again, the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. 
Now, in the context of Genesis 1 and 2, there is a stark, uh, there's an opposite value judgment that God declares over the situation of a man alone in the world God has designed and created. Instead of the oft-repeated, and it was good, that we see all the way through chapter 1, we now have a negative value judgment. God's saying it is not good uh, for man, that man should be alone. Notice again, when we're reading the Scriptures, uh, for instance, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 12, after God creates the earth, it brings forth vegetation of plants yielding seed according to their kinds, and the trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And the Lord saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So there's a sense of completion and order here. Once the earth, uh, with respect to the trees, the fruit-bearing trees, and all the plants that beautify the landscape to the horizon, all of the uh, plantings and the herbs of the field and the trees that clap their hands and praise to the Lord are fully functional, producing their fruit in season, and have the reproductive capacity and genetic potential fully realized in the fertile soil of God's original creation, God looks upon this landscape and says, it is good. And He does so in each, in each case. He says that after He has set the sun to rule over the day, and the lights, of course, stars and moon to rule over the night, He has separated the light from the darkness, verse 18. God sees it, and He issues a value judgment. He says, it was good. We get to day six. And as we've recalled through our study in Genesis, day one, God creates light. Day two, air and water. Day three, the plants and the earth. Uh, the earth and plants. Day four, the heavenly lights. See if I can get these all. Day five, the fish and the fowl. Day six, animals and man. Day seven, he rested. On day six, God issues a value judgment as well. Genesis 1.31. God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now, as we stated, Genesis 1 is an overview. It's like, imagine Google Earth. We use this illustration. Imagine Google Earth, and it's uh, looking down on the whole uh, United States. And then you want to see your neighborhood. Well, you can't see it from that view. It's too high. So you double-click with your mouse and it zooms in on central Minnesota, and suddenly the building, you do that enough, suddenly the buildings of your neighborhood come into view, and you can point out your driveway, or as I recall, even the tent we had set up in the backyard during a time when the satellite took the image. It's amazing. So it's a zoom in. <clears throat> now, things that in Genesis 1 are a broad scope are zoomed in in Genesis 2. And Genesis 2 gives us a vantage point to see what all happened on day six. So on day six, there was a time when God's plan for the creation of man was not yet complete. And if it had stayed there, it would not have been good by his own judgment. And, you know, I don't know how long, let's say halfway through day six, God says, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then, of course, the narrative proceeds. And shortly, Eve is introduced to Adam, and the very first poetry bursts forth from man, and rightly so, as he sees his perfect fitting helper uh, come to him in all the beauty of, original, of, of the original innocence of, of, of cre creation, and, and he exclaims, 
This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And at this point, things are very good. That is to say, when things go from not good to very good with the institution of marriage. Marriage is absolutely fundamental to the very goodness, if you will, of creation itself. Without God's divine institution of the relationship between man and woman, male and females, He created them from the beginning, creation would be incomplete, it would not be good, it would not be full, it would not realize everything that God had intended to take place. From the beginning, marriage has been divinely purposed, and therefore, without marriage, the creation is not good, with marriage, it becomes very good. Secondly, under divinely purposed, God says, in and of Himself, I will make. Now, these three words are extremely important. They're simple. They're right here. They're emphatic, emphatically and author, authoritatively declared, but they are lost on us culturally, are they, not? are they not? Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We want to reserve the right for ourselves to know what kind of helper is fit for us in our day and age, as I mentioned before. Man thinks now that marriage is something like a social construct, or it's ju just an uh, evolutionary device for the preservation of the species, and it has no real, intent, no real transcendent meaning, no real divine intent behind it. This is false. Jesus says, have you not read from the beginning? And he quotes words from this text. Well, in the context here, we have the, remain, we have the rest of the words. And God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Marriage is divinely purposed. It's God's idea. It's God's plan. It's God's institution. It's God's work that he has accomplished on day six. And shame on anyone who would make it any less. This denotes, this word, this, uh, word uh, of the Godhead, I will make, this denotes the sovereign initiative of the Lord of marriage. Marriage is not a man-made social construct, as we've said. It is not something that can be rearranged or manipulated or changed according to the latest cultural preferences. It is not to be redefined, abolished, or twisted in any sense. All attempts to do so are a profaning of the Word of God. A profaning of the Word of God. If God establishes and decrees something, is it not holy? Is it not righteous? Is it not gloriously purposed to give Him praise and honor? Yes. Therefore, the twisting, manipulating, the changing, the profaning, the remaking in our sinful image of any of these things is the profanation, it's the profaning, it's the making dirty, it's the soiling, it's the denigrating of the very Word of God. We mess with the institution of marriage at our own peril. In this sense, you could rightly say it is blasphemy. It is blasphemy against the God who says from the beginning, have you not read male and female he created him? Therefore, what God has put together, let no man separate it. It's blasphemy to come up with different terms, different concepts, different ideas of the fundamental relationships that God has established from the very beginning for the glory of Himself and for the benefit of man. The last thing under divinely purpose is we find that God has designed, has plans to design at this point, verse 19, a fitting helper for Adam. It's not good that man should be alone. 
I will make him a helper fit for him. The godly intent and the purpose statement, if you will, for this union is that man and woman would serve in a joint sense of calling. What is Adam to do? He is to take dominion. We see this all the way back in chapter 1. God creates man in his own image. Verse 27, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this is, of course, the summary account. This is the kind of big picture satellite view. Verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, here's a command, here's a mission statement, here's a job description. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God goes on to describe all the gifts in His great, bountiful creation that He's given man to subdue. And so we see that a fitting helper for man would be one who would come alongside and the synergy of their work together, that is, they can accomplish more together than the sum of what they could do separately, is a perfect match. It is a sort of uh, inertia and a sort of uh, great complementary arrangement for this sense of calling for, uh, to, to be manifest and for them to be obedient to it to great and glorious degree. Where two people, male and female, are made in the image of God in Genesis 1, they are equal in dignity, we find, in Genesis 1, as we've just read, and worth. This complementary arrangement, therefore, is one where, again, there's two people, male and female, made in the image of God, equal in dignity and worth, and they serve the Lord and each other in their calling-specific complementary roles. Uh, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, the context, the context isn't directly having to do with marriage, but marriage certainly applies. And Paul tells people not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Picture the, a yoke. You may have seen them before. It's a bar like so, you know, the more primitive form. Imagine a crossbeam like so, and a couple U-shapes. And you lock in your oxen into that yoke, and you double the strength, if not more, of the, pl- of the plowing capacity um, with that yoke. I was reading because I was bored and brushing my teeth on a box of soap in our bathroom, and they said, uh, this is a 20-mule team soap or something like that. I'm like, what in the world is a 20-mule team soap? So I look on the little deal, and in Salt Lake City, uh, during these mines where they would mine this uh, product that they used for a cleansing agent, this guy had the bright idea of hitching up 20 mules, and they could pull 10 tons of this uh, mineral out of these salt mines and so forth in Utah. Well, you better believe that in order to get 20 mules heading one direction, you better have a good yoking system. They all have to be going the same direction and have the same focus in mind. But when they do, a 20-ton, well-yoked mule team can pull 10 tons of soap product or whatever. That's my illustration. But uh, to illustrate uh, what a yoke is all about, it's this idea of a joining together of purposes to head toward a certain direction to accomplish more together than you could otherwise. And this is the idea between behind a fitting helper. God has brought a man, a woman, to man, so that this fitting helper, when yoked together with his purposes and his divine intentions, intentions, this divinely purposed, ordained direction and goal for marriage, will glorify him and obey him in taking dominion over his great earth. From the beginning, this is what marriage has been. It's a divinely purposed arrangement. 
Now, marriage is also design-specific. There are reasons why God has ordered things so, and even in the creative purposes that God employs to make woman and so forth, we see evidence of His design-specific arrangement. Verse 19 of Genesis 2. <clears throat> There's a little flashback, if you will, a little backstory. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what He would call them. This is sort of a reminder in the text of the way that God has created prior to this moment on day six. God created everything, yes, even man himself, out of the ground, out of the dust of the earth. Um, that is, every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, as referenced here. Now, man had an additional creative element, and that is that God breathed into his nostrils and he became a living soul. The image of God was endowed upon him, was given to him, and he became unique indeed. Yet, nevertheless, man was made from the dust of the earth. Now, man is serving in his vocational role here in the text. And as these beasts that were made from the earth are paraded before him, man called every living creature, uh, that and, uh, and whatever man called every living creature, that was its name. Verse 20, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And then this note of anticipation and incompletion. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So we find in this context then that the creation of Eve and the essence of Eve was categorically unique. Eve's creation story is different. It's different than all the creatures of the ground and the birds of the air. She is not made from the dust of the earth in the same way that the rest of them were. She is categorically unique. There's something different going on here. Now, this speaks to the relational aspect of God's purposes for man and woman. In part, you could say that the part of the reason why Eve was created from a man's rib, Adam's rib, as we will see, is because they, uh, they are a pair, a perfectly matched, complementary pair, and they share in the essence of humanity, and had, God had purposes for them together. Well, God is therefore joined together. It makes sense that Christ would say, let no man separate. And so we see purpose even in this design-specific way that God causes his uh, work to uh, flourish in the creation of Eve herself. The creative event surrounding the making of Eve is one of a kind. So ladies, you can feel special about this. No other creature was made exactly the way you were made. You are categorically unique. You are special. God has ordained, in his, even in His creative means, that He employed something specific to your call before Him to give Him glory and for your good. So verses 19 and 20 remind us of this, that the creative means that God employs for beasts and birds, not to mention in part for Adam himself who was formed of dust, was now, uh, was now different, in, or, or that, that creative means was now set aside, as it were, and God instead creates Eve in an entirely different way. In this we see man's vocational fall, uh, calling unfolding, yet a uh, dissatisfied note upon the completion of his naming uh, of or his naming task here. So, um, part of so we see man operating in part uh, of his calling here, out of the ground that the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. Um, the Lord brings these beasts to man. He begins to name them. So there's a, an obedient walk 
that Adam is embarking upon. He's beginning to obey the Lord in his calling through this naming activity to take dominion over the beast. But uh, he could use a help me, we see in the text. And there's this sense of longing or lack or incompletion. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam has now been able to in, you know, uh, categorize all of the animals that have come before him. And at the end, there's this feeling of longing or lack or loneliness as we see. And, there, and this speaks to God's purposes to make day six very good. So we go on. In this design-specific situation, something happens to Adam. Not only is the creation of Eve unique, but it's preceded by a deep sleep falling upon Adam. We notice verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Turn over with me to Genesis 15, if you would. Here in the Hebrew, the original language is an identical construction for a different event. A deep sleep falls upon someone else, that is to say, in Genesis 15. Here we pick up on the story of one of the patriarchs, Abraham. Notice verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be, servant, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. It goes on to explain some of the future, a prophetic vision that Abraham has seen, as it were, in this deep sleep. Verse 17, something else occurs at this time. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, to the river Egypt, to the great river, to the river Euphrates, and so forth. And then he expounds on this, the region by identifying its borders by the peoples that dwelt there. What I want you to note is in this parallel text that a deep sleep falls upon God's servant. Uh, we were asking ourselves in family worship this week, why did God put Adam to sleep before he made Eve? That's an interesting question. If you read in the commentary, some might say, oh, so he didn't feel any pain. Of course, this is a pre-fall situation, so it's a little speculative how the body systems worked and how pain would come into play or not. Was this sort of an anesthesia? Um, there's other places in the Bible where a deep sleep falls upon God's servant. You could note these on your own time in the future, and two of them occur in Daniel. Daniel 8, verse 18, and also chapter 10, verses 8 and 9. I submit to you that this idea of deep sleep, where one of God's servants is overcome by the power of God, he himself is sedated. It's the idea that the work of man is set aside and God is going to do an absolutely sovereign work to accomplish something profound and powerful. These moments of interaction between God and man associated with this deep sleep are often attended by the miraculous. Something miraculous is about to occur, also revelatory. God is going to reveal himself to man. Also, covenant is in view in, in Genesis 15, and a prophetic vision is recorded in Daniel 8 and 10. So when God causes this deep sleep to fall upon Adam, we might attach some of these ideas from other portions of Scripture where he has, worked, where, where he has uh, presumed upon his servants in a similar way that something significant is going on here. This deep sleep 
uh, signals a very important moment in redemptive history, in, creation, in the creation week, in God's purposes. And these purposes are to reveal Himself in miraculous ways, to show something of His nature and character, to perhaps initiate a covenant or to grant a prophetic vision. Turn with me to Ephesians 5. Paul says that there is something mysterious attached to our words that we have read in Genesis chapter 2. Paul cites directly as Jesus did the events that we've read this morning in our text, and then he attaches them to something profound. He gives some instructions for husbands and wives. You're familiar with this. If you've ever been to a Providence officiated wedding, it's almost always featured in the message. My favorite text on marriage for sure. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her and having cleansed her by the washing of the water, washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. goes on to say, verse 28, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. We could pause there and we might ask the question, why was Eve made from one of Adam's ribs? Well, Adam would have this lesson right away. To not love my wife is to not love a part of me. I nourish and cherish myself. This woman was made from a part of me. To not nourish and cherish her is to do violence to myself, is to be abusive to my own self. In other words, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Husbands, listen to me. If you treat poorly your wife, what you are doing is separating in that sin what God has joined together. You are not treating her as you would coddle yourself, but you are instead treating her as something separate than you that you have the freedom to do with as you ought. Instead of being a servant-hearted, Christ-like, self-giving, sacrificial love, concern, and care for her, you are transgressing God's original intent in marriage and proving that you need to repent and to put back into your mind the value and view that God had of marriage in the first place. Wives, likewise. So you see the value of this, do you not? The application of returning in your mind to the truth of, we are one flesh here. Why am I treating it? Why is there a division between us? Why is there tension? Why are we at each other's throats and so forth? Something needs to change. We need to return to God's original intent for this union. But Paul says, so we can see that meaning even back in Genesis. But it's more profound still. And Paul goes on to explain, verse 31, Here he cites Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So why does God cause this deep sleep to fall upon Adam? Why is there an attention, our focus and attention drawn to this significant moment in, redemptive, or in uh, creation history? It's because it's also a significant moment in redemptive history. That is, a picture of Christ and the church is introduced to us in Genesis chapter 2. 
in the creation from, of Eve from Adam's rib and their orda- sovereignly ordained relationship in marriage. Now, theologians through the years, through the centuries, have identified Genesis 3.15 as, if I get this right, the proto Galeon or something like that. It means the first gospel in Greek. This is the reference where uh, the curse is pronounced to Satan and it's said of the seed of the woman, speaking of Jesus Christ, that he would crush Satan's head, but Satan would bruise his heel. The first mention of the gospel, the scholars tell us, well, Paul might beg to differ. Perhaps we can see with the connection of Ephesians 5 that the first mention of the gospel goes all the way back to Genesis 2 in the picture of marriage itself. And this would explain why it's so significant that God causes this deep sleep that is normally associated with something miraculous, something revelatory, something covenantal, something prophetic. And indeed, we find in the greater testimony of Scripture that is indeed the case. God has instituted not just a relationship that will be the fabric, framework, and foundation for a well-ordered society when healthy marriages thrive, so do nations. But more than this, God has instituted a picture of the relationship that He intends to have with His bride. That is to say, Jesus Christ will lay down His life in a sacrificial way to redeem for Himself a bride. And even in the picture of the piercing of Christ's own side, we can see in the second Adam something related perhaps to what Adam went through. That is to say, just as the first Adam's side received something of a wound and a rib was taken and formed Eve, so from the blood-stained side of Christ, where the spear pierced, so was purchased price made for him to be united with his bride. And so in him there is a union. And just as man and wife and marriage and holy matrimony become one flesh, so in Christ, Jesus our bridegroom, and we the bride and we the bride are united in spiritual, mystical, as it were, union with him. Profound indeed. This is why. The creative procedure and the whole uh, and these elements that we see recorded for us in Genesis two are design specific. Let's close this message by mentioning one more thing. From the beginning, marriage has been not just divinely purposed, not just design specific in context, but also covenantally established. Right away. The first bit of poetry man ever utters, as I mentioned, verse 23, the man said, so Adam exclaims, quote, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The theme of this bit of poetry is covenantal indeed. Uh, What Adam is exalting in is a shared experience in relationship that occurred through the shedding of blood, as it were. And man goes on to name woman. It's really interesting here. Um, man, in some, to, some kind of, to a kind of anticlimactic conclusion, has successfully named all the livestock and birds, and at the end of his task, uh, yet a helper is not found for him. But there is one more creature for him to name on day six. Hasn't arrived. But when she, uh, is a, when she approaches him, By God's miraculous power, after being created from one of his own ribs, he exclaims with his joyful song of worship, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, he names her, because she was taken out of man. And on this, at this moment, day six was very good. When woman was named, (coughs) when Eve entered Adam's life, 
when the first union of man and woman, the very first marriage, that would be the type that God employs to even illustrate the gospel as we see through the course of redemptive history. When that action took place, it was amazing indeed. And the covenant aspects of this are clear. This is a relationship between man and woman. It has terms and conditions. We see them laid out. It is right and fitting that marriages would have vow ceremonies, a promises, a commitment to one another, vows where upon taking them, the implication is there will be a curse, a punishment if they are broken, yet when they are abided by, there is a blessing, there is a unity, there is a fitness, there is a helper relationship that is effective and operational. This is a leave and cleave union. The narrator goes on to say, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Brief note of cultural commentary. In our nation, in our culture, generally speaking today in the West, let's say, which do we consider a stronger bond? Parents to children or man to wife? How many people do you know who have disowned their children? Quite literally said, I separate myself uh, from my children. I no longer consider myself their parent. <clears throat> that almost never happens, you know, and, and rightly so. However, on the other side of the coin, how many of you know someone who is divorced or have experienced the painful uh, ramifications of the brokenness of that relationship, man to woman? <clears throat> well, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. No fault divorce came in like a, a flood into this nation and the legal system, and ever since, families have been torn apart, often over a whim. And the marriage union has become less and less a powerful bond evident in our culture and more and more a thing that is treated lightly and taken for granted and dissolved at a moment's notice. Now, the, the scriptures speak entirely the opposite of this. There is a time in the life of parents to children where they leave that relationship in some sense. It's not to say they're no longer a son or daughter of their parents, but it is to say they leave the covering they leave the protection and the provision that's offered through their parents and they cleave to a new and a relationship that trumps their parent-to-children relationship. God has called, that is to say, in the terms of marriage, for a stronger bond to be forged than even that of parents to children. This is a one-flesh union. It's not even to be seen as you know, two individuals who uh, realize their dream because our dreams mesh so well and He's the one that I expected. She is the one I can't imagine living without. Whatever we romanticize about relationships today. No, God takes the two and makes them one. And they are not to think of themselves as two autonomous, independent individuals that somehow find a way to make it work or somehow you know, are excited because they have so much continuity or so much agree, you know, agreement in their marriage. The Scriptures say something differently entirely. This is a covenant. This is a covenant that God has established as a picture of the holding fast covenant that Christ had has with His own. Will Christ ever let go of His children? Will Christ ever treat lightly or take for granted His elect whom He bought at the cost of the shedding of His own blood from His wounded side? He will not. The language of hold fast is attached to covenants through Scripture. You can read, for instance, on your own time, Deuteronomy 10.20, the message, the commandment, the imperative to the children of Israel is hold fast to the Word of God. Hold fast to this covenant. In it is the words for your life. In faithfulness to this covenant, you will find your flourishing. 
And so the language is apparent here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. They shall become one flesh. A white-knuckled commitment to what God has joined together. To not blaspheme him by separating it for ungodly reasons. Last mention. Perhaps the weirdest verse to our eyes is verse 25. And it can be a little embarrassing at first read. <clears throat> and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Whatever could that mean? Well, there's more to be said on this, and I ex- intend to expand it in weeks to come. But I've done some research, and an interesting, you can study this later, an interesting parallel passage comes to us in Ezekiel 28, verses 13 and 14. I listened to a lecture on this. It was very intriguing indeed. The prophet uses in Ezekiel 28 language to describe Adam's pre-fall state as he compares him to the king of Tyre. And he doesn't describe him as a naked man. He describes him as a priest, one wearing garments that are shining with precious jewels, similar to the vestments that we see in the law prescribed for the high priest when he inhabits God's holy place. And what we find in the greater testimony of Scripture is that in its original form, Eden was something of a sanctuary. It was a place where the covenant terms were there so that mankind had perfect fellowship with a holy God. And in this sense, as we've mentioned, Adam was called to be a priest of that realm. When he is called to work and to keep the garden, that's the exact same language, exact same job description that is given the Levites and the priests who serve in the tabernacle and temple. They were called to work and keep that place. That is, to be faithful to the covenant, to preserve the conditions where a holy God could meet with a redeemed man and so forth. So Adam was something of a priest. Now, Adam didn't have any physical clothes, as we read here, but he was clothed with something. He was clothed with the innocence, the righteousness of the image of God. And certainly he lost something when he sinned. We will read in upcoming weeks how his eyes were opened to his own nakedness. What do you suppose that means? His eyes were opened to the fact that he hadn't shopped at, you know, J. Crew lately. That's the only merchant I can think of off the top of my head. He hadn't gone to Walmart and found uh, himself a cheap pair of jeans. Is that why he's ashamed and embarrassed? Or is it because that clothing, as it were, of the innocence and righteousness that he enjoyed before the fall was suddenly lost, and now he was exposed and vulnerable And he had no reason to think that the snake that deceived him before won't come and exploit him forever in the future. So it's this powerful imagery of a vulnerability and a shamedness and and the ability to be exploited, and he thus searches for a covering. And when God comes in the Garden of Eden, it says that Adam is afraid, or Adam says he's afraid, and he gives a reason why. He's afraid because he is naked. Wasn't that interesting? I submit to you that Adam cried out for a covering more than just physical clothes. Adam cried out for a covering that would only ultimately be be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let me submit something else to you. The covering that comes when the fullness of Jesus Christ, what he has promised and delivered in the gospel, actually is draped over the form of the elect. It is actually a superior covering than Adam ever enjoyed in his state of innocence in the garden. I submit to you that the context of, scriptures, of the Scriptures is this. Compared to the innocence that Adam knew in the garden, the glory that we will partake of and enjoy in heaven, Adam might as well be naked compared to the glorious future that we have in store. Adam was destined to advance unto glory if he was obedient 
to the covenant of works, as it were. Well, he was stripped of that innocence when he fell. The last verse I want to read is in Revelation chapter 7. speaks of the glorious clothing to come. Listen as the Word of God is proclaimed in conclusion this morning. Revelation 7, 9. John, the revelator, he sees in his vision. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and all the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 13. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know, and he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. goes on to say the glorious environment that they enjoy now in heaven, in glory, ultimately new heavens and new earth. Verse 17, for instance, For the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. In the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Adam, as it were, if he trusts in the seed of the woman to come, whose sacrifice and blood spilt would earn for him new clothing, will receive this glorious uh, moment in the future. And so will we. Though in our sin we are naked and exposed, and though we have transgressed God's law, and even as the terms of marriage have been proclaimed to us today, we find perhaps in our own relationships a woefully falling short of the mark, that is sin, falling short of the glory of God, falling short of the mark of the standard of perfection that He has established. Nevertheless, the covenantal bond that marriage points forward to is that union with Christ whereby His shed blood will purchase for us covering for our sinful nakedness. Praise the Lord. Let us close in prayer. O Lord, we thank You for the power of Your Holy Word. We pray that You would gloriously attached the ideas from Genesis all the way through Revelation in our minds and the cohesive whole as you have originally intended as we seek to study and rightly divide your word of truth. We pray that this will achieve a greater conviction of our sin, a greater faithfulness to the covenant, a greater desire to walk in the way that you have intended, and a greater ability and a greater drive to proclaim to the yet lost world that there is hope in Jesus Christ a restoration of relationship, a fulfillment of our heart's deepest longings, and a vision for a glorious restoration of what Adam lost in the fall, to be reunited, Lord Jesus, to be recreated in Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Thank you for your holy scriptures. I pray that you would build within our souls the building blocks and foundations so we may stand in a day where these truths are threatened. All to the praise of your great name, dear Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Lord, I thank you that you are glorified in all of your works. And now I pray that you would glorify yourself in our lives as we seek to apply this word through the course of our week this week. 
May you bless us and keep us and make your face to shine upon us. Lift up your countenance upon us and give us peace. That we may walk in your ways and fulfill your purpose for our lives. To live in light of the glorious truth of the gospel. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.